This is a bonus episode of Behind the Lens with the deans of Xavier University and Dillard University, HBCU schools in New Orleans. On September 2nd, the presidents of Dillard and Xavier in New Orleans wrote a letter to the students, staff, and faculty of their schools informing them that they are already participating in the national vaccine trial being conducted right now by a pharmaceutical company, Pfizer, and run locally by the Ochsner Medical System. They write, Our communities have been hit hard by the COVID-19 pandemic with harrowing consequences for the lives and health of our fellow citizens. Overcoming the virus will require the availability of vaccines effective for all peoples in our communities, especially our black and brown neighbors. Phase three vaccine trials have begun across the nation, including in New Orleans. It is of the utmost importance that a significant number of black and brown subjects participate so that the effectiveness of these vaccines be understood across the many diverse populations that comprise these United States. Our health reporter, Philip Kiefer, and I spoke to Dr. Walter Kimbrough and Dr. C. Reynolds Verrett about their decision to participate in the trial and their letter encouraging others to do the same. We were unable to have them on the phone together due to scheduling conflicts, so we spoke to them separately. Up first, a portion of our discussion with the Dean of Xavier University of Louisiana. A Haitian native, Dr. C. Reynolds Verrett received his undergraduate degree in biochemistry from Columbia University and has a PhD in biochemistry from MIT. Dr. Verrett, on behalf of myself and Philip, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. To start off with, how did you come to be part of the trial? Were you solicited specifically to participate or did you come to it on your own? No, I, I, I learned about the trial at the same time that I, I guess I guess I needed recruited. I was speaking to my own physician, my own personal physician, and who, who mentioned the trial to me. And I said, ah. And, uh, and basically I, I mentioned that I'd be interested in getting some more information about it. And they sent me information about it. And, they, and he came back to me and said, oh, so he said, since I have no medical records, I'm your doctor. I looked at your records. Basically, I see nothing that will prevent you from being on the trial. Uh, uh, and your health is fine. I mean, but they'll follow up with you. That, that was my initial interaction with them. And so uh, when I got the information about the trial, the, uh, the informed consent process and things like that, and I knew that it was a Pfizer vaccine, uh, and that it was uh, what phase it was, that it was a phase two, phase three combined initially. I said, well, and that also told me something else that it was important that anyone should know that the, the first safety evaluations had been done already. This was about efficacy, which puts your mind a little more at ease. But I, I also knew that there were certain people who might consider heroes who had stepped up before, who had listed themselves with the phase one uh, trials of these vaccines as well. And there were people like me, you, and uh, young people, uh, uh, especially on the West Coast. So I was quite willing to, to be a member of the trial. When I had my, when I had my, after my first uh, uh, evaluation and I got my first shot, uh, I had a conversation with, 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 uh, with Walter Kimbrough. And there I shared that with him and basically he mentioned to me that he had considered coming into a trial as well because he himself knew about the low uh, inclusion of African Americans in a trial like this. And also both of us are aware that a number, the, the, the numbers of victims, uh, both on cases and also in mortality, uh, are much higher, significantly higher among African Americans and also other, other brown people as well. And that uh, the people who need the vaccine, significant numbers in their communities, were people who look like me and all look, look like my children. So that was the issue. And basically, uh, Walter Kimbrough himself, I mean, I'll say Walter, but you can say Walter Kimbrough, my brother, our president at Dillard, 
um, stepped in and offered himself in the trial as well. And that's when we discussed that probably should share that we should share this with our, with our with our students and our faculty. Just let them know. And what we let them know is basically that we had we had been in the trial. That uh, I had gotten my injection. I believe I don't know if I had got my second one yet. Um, and uh, and that we were well. That's it. And that and, and and what I what I said is that I we encourage uh, people in our in our communities, also beyond our communities, to consider being members of the tribe for the reason that basically we knew that the percentage of African Americans and other brown people were somewhere in, in, in the low in the low single digits. And if and the really as a as an immunologist and a biochemist, uh, what I do know is that as we go through this to understand fully how the effect is of the vaccine in, our, in different populations, you need representation from different populations. For example, the question would be, do all peoples equally uh, produce protective antibodies for a number of reasons? Because of certain gene types, things like that. That's something that we don't know unless you have a random pool to be able to look at and to see exactly when you take serum and blood to take a blood sample from, from, from different subjects, did they produce antibodies? And are they right, are they the right kind of antibodies? Uh, is a protection from COVID-19? because we are now in the population and they'll be looking at the placebo and the experimentals and the vaccine sample to see this group, which, what is the case incidence in among these different groups? Because they'll be testing us uh, and they want to know. And to be able to say that this is equally effective or not as effective in certain people is important information to know from the get-go, not afterwards. And specifically in different people, when you say in different people, you're talking about people of different all, races. All the subsets of the American population. And I will take an extreme case. As a scientist coming up is the disparity in the inclusion of different peoples in different groups uh, 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 for clinical trials. I was always also aware of some of the failures of clinical trials to justly use, uh, include different peoples. For example, I mentioned that there were many drugs that were tested only on men and therefore we never knew the effect and doctors had to by happenstance and to come to understand what the dosage is and what the symptomology that would be associated with using if you think about it back then see that's stupid but really we were that stupid but also there were there are clearly injustices in how we use we did clinical trials we also did not fully include um african-americans and when we did include african-americans sometimes we, they were truly misused the tuskegee example is one of them there were trials in the native uh, on native american peoples that 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 that, 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 that have been documented all those injustices exist. I also know that we've had many years of effort to actually make sure that trials are transparent and to make sure that the people involved in overseeing these trials, the, the human subjects committees, are very diverse and bring other people uh, to, to oversee and make sure that informed consent and that people are not being misused. That's important. I want to ask a bit more about your training as a biochemist, correct? Yes. Have you participated in a clinical trial before, or had you considered it before? Only as subjects, but but not not, not in a vaccine trial before. Uh, I'm not a clinician, but I'm an immunologist. We also understand uh, a lot of the work about developing vaccines, the different expression of vaccines in, 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 in different people, the different genotype issues that that, 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 that cause certain vaccines to play out differently in different peoples is important. So I think it's in, uh, we have uh, in any population with a vaccine, there are people who are called non-responders who just don't develop an immune response. But they benefit because if we have herd immunity, which means if everyone, if the majority are vaccinated, there's nobody to infect me. So that's important to know. And you only understand that in, 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 a, in a large perspective trial. That's the important, that's the goodness. And the other piece is about understanding that we are, it's not about ourselves, it's about who's going to be a service 
to our communities. Some of us will step up. Some of us cannot because of their health reasons, right? But some of us have to step up. And I decided that my age and my type, I should rope my sleeve. How were the risks of the trial described to you before your participation? Well, the risks of the trials, the, the basic risks that, that, that were seen in the initial safety studies were there. Uh, there could be some adverse thing, for example, the vaccine, for example, has even the possibility of actually uh, making someone more susceptible to, to, to certain other illnesses that, that, that you would not know. Uh, you would see those in, in, in the large in the, law, in the law, in the larger trial. But the risks themselves are rather not unlike the risks that what we see with many vaccines, whether it's a measles or meningitis or a flu vaccine. Uh, surely the uh, likelihood of, of getting a, a, a low-grade fever uh, that may last a day or so, muscle ache, that rundown feeling you get when, you, when you're feeling sick, that's because your body's responding to it. There are, there are things that are not altogether pleasant about a vaccine, but uh, the benefits are a lot more. So can you walk us through what your participation actually looks like? When did you receive your first injection? How many will you get? A little more than a month ago that I went in for my first shot. They, uh, when, I, when I arrived, they also did a, a, COVID, a COVID-19 test, the nasal, not, not fun. Um, but that was five seconds, it seemed like 20 seconds. Uh, but uh, they, 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 they checked to see whether you have COVID-19, those tests go in the lab, they have, that, they have those data. Then they will sit down to go through your entire medical history, what they have in your medical history, and make sure they, that there's nothing missing that you may not, that they may not have received from their own data, from their own, because they have my medical records, some of those from my doctor. But also things that may have done what vaccines, any, any, any response, any response to prior vaccines that I may have had that would create a concern. Uh, they want to know exactly uh, whether I wear a mask, certain, certain practices that, that that would be considered in their data when they cast out unloading the data, whether I routinely wear a mask, which I do, except when I'm speaking to you by Zoom. Things like that. They also speak of all the risks that, that, that have occurred, uh, even, even, even some of the un- un- unforeseen risks of people who actually have very bad reactions, which is why they might exclude certain people with certain medical problems, like uh, some cardiac issues that, 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 that were undone, for example. Uh, they would speak about certain, uh, uh, if you had a, a murmur as a child, right? Even if the murmur is behind, they'd want to know about that because that's some of the things that they will factor. And then the physicians managing the trials uh, evaluate that and basically decide whether everything is clear, they come back. So they keep you waiting because they, they take time. So it's a good two, three hours. And they come back and meanwhile, they have the lab, the, the pharmacy preparing the vaccine, with the labs of pharmacy. I think of labs. Uh, they prepare the vaccine, which is uh, the dosage, and basically they come and roll up your sleeve. They don't let you go because they need to make sure you don't have any rapid adverse reactions, uh, what's called a delayed type of sensitivity reaction, an anaphylactic reaction. And they'll hold, keep you around for a little while, they won't let you go. And then once they once they've waited wait a certain amount of time, then they brief you, they take you to another room where they brief you on using an app which they load onto your, your phone. The app is basically over the next seven days, you're reporting your symptoms. For example, they give me a thermometer. Uh, I take my temperature daily, I'm reporting my temperature daily. Um, I, do I have any headaches, any, any muscle ache? Uh, uh, and then rate the mild, severe, uh, mild, mild. It's, it's a three grade scale, so from mild up to, up to very severe. Uh, and, and headaches, things like that. 
uh, redness on your arms. There's any redness on your arms? There, there, there's a little caliper that you use to measure the diameter of the redness. You see, see one of the caliper of the redness. And I feel soreness in the arm where the injection went in. I felt the soreness that day. By the next day, and and I admit that uh, within a day or two, uh, I know that I was feeling well enough to go out on a long bike ride, about 12 bike, 12 miles with my son. So it didn't kill me. Uh, uh, <laughs> and also, and, and, I, and I feel quite well about it. Uh, whether I'm in the injection or in the positive or placebo group, I cannot. They don't tell you, and they will not tell you. Uh, I could surmise some things, but it also could be that the placebo effect is also imagination is also pretty strong. That you can imagine yourself a fever of, uh, of half a degree. That's not unusual. So it doesn't tell you much. Okay. It's amazing what the placebo effect is. It's not, it's, it's not imaginary, it's real. <laughs> so there are no follow-up vaccinations. It's a single one. I took the second. Okay. So how will you be monitored going forward? They said, or you said they'll take a blood sample? There is a blood sampling that will be in, in a week or so. They begin, they take a blood sample and they'll be looking for antibody levels. And I believe there's an, they'll take blood samples later to see exactly how long the titer and where the titer is going. So, so they'll, be, they'll be bleeding me. Probably, um, I'd say, I don't, I don't remember this timetable they'll tell me, but I think it'll be every, 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 every month or two. So they'll want to see track, how does it last, whatever it is, and if there are any. And because also remember, the, the uh, COVID-19 piece is that since there are other COVID uh, coronaviruses that cause common colds that you and I have been exposed to several times in our lives. So there is some parallel immunity, which is not specific, which is to the broad class, but to the broad class of coronavirus that probably shows up in the blood of people as well, which makes the interesting follow-up. But the larger piece is also looking at the larger groups. And, to, and because in our diary, you're reporting any COVID-19 symptoms on the, on the electronic diary to them, and they're getting data. If you do have COVID-19, they even sent you a swab that you would swab yourself, stick it in the tube, bring it in. <laughs> so the test, uh, uh, you can self-swap. That's interesting to be fun. But uh, they want to know exactly are, of the two groups, which group over the next in the next few months is showing with infections and which are not from infections. And difference will tell them a lot. Do you know what success will look like in terms of the blood response? Um, oh, yes, yes. The antibody titers and, and, and the antibodies against what part of the virus. Because certain antibodies block the virus from interacting with cells and infecting cells. If the antibody has a receptor, the cells have receptors that bind to a ligand, to a ligand on top on the cell surface that cause the virus to then go deliver its, its nucleic material inside the cell. The antibody binds to that surface, it cannot bind. So it prevents the reinfection cycle. So that even you know, if you have an infected cell that first gets infected, right? It shows virus. The antibody comes on those, those virus particles. Those virus particles cannot go to the next level of infection. That, that shuts off the cycle. So they're called blocking antibodies. And so success would be if you can demonstrate that the experimental group have long-lasting antibodies. Yes. And, 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 I don't, and, and the long-lasting part that even if the antibody titer Initially, it's going to go because when you immunize someone, you get a certain level. When you boost them a second time with the with the booster shot, you get much higher, so very rapidly. Okay, and it comes down again. That's okay. But then, once you see infection, right? Because of that memory, it boosts very quickly. 
So you'll have the antibody level will drop, and then, but then that memory will be there to really rapidly create uh, antibody-producing cells. And that's why I think you may have heard there are two uh, reports of people who've been reinfected with COVID-19. And the interesting one is a report from So, I believe it was So. But when he was reinfected, and he could show that the person was reinfected with a different isolate of the virus. In other words, a virus, an isolate that had, because of drift, showed up in Europe. And the person that traveled to Europe picked up another infection in Europe and became infected, right? But his symptoms were much milder because of that immunity. So that's what we'd like to see. Yeah. And so that reinfection, for example, we get colds, but we, because I remember the immunity of, of, of our common cold viruses, the experience of the common cold subsequently are milder and never anything close to the flu. So you brought this point up earlier, but I do want to ask a question directly on it. The letter refers specifically to historic racist unethical medical research in the US, specifically the Tuskegee experiment um, in which investigators with the US Public Health Service withheld care from a group of black men infected with syphilis in order to study how the disease progresses untreated. And let, um, them, go, let them go infect other people. <laughs> how do you want members of your community that you address the letter to, to understand this vaccine trial in light of that history? In light of that history, it is important to actually use our knowledge to make informed decisions. And informed decisions have to do with making sure that you have people who can be trusted while managing the vaccine trial, that they are acting in a transparent way. Very different from what, understand that the Tuskegee experiment is not the one to be forgotten, but we should not presume that the experience of today in this vaccine trial which Pfizer and Moderna are doing is the same as the Tuskegee experiment. What is what the difference of our light years? One is that you do have human subjects committees that are very transparent and open and have, and have membership with people who actually are, are, are known and reputable, but also that the, the standards for informing people about the trial is very, are, are, are very clear. People are informed of things like that. Uh, that was not clear that in the, in the Tuskegee experiment that everyone was, was, was even partially informed. So they are different. So understanding that the errors of the past cannot prevent us from doing the thing that we need to help ourselves. And I would mention something that one, one of the pieces that we must not let, let happen is that as it was with masking, which were an innocent point in January and February, when we allowed masks to become politicized, suddenly wearing a mask became a question of whose, sides are you, whose side are you on? We were defeating ourselves as a people because essentially the tools that will protect and save lives, right? We had politicized. A vaccine, whether it is a scheduled vaccine or whether the trial or when the vaccine is deployed, should be based upon good science as masking should be done. We should not allow it to be politicized and misinform ourselves so that to remove from ourselves and from our people we love the basic tools that can protect them. That is important. So Tuskegee was important, but they say we are not living Tuskegee right now. And what and the key difference is that, that if we want to do it differently, we need to be pay attention and ask questions and scrutinize who and what is being done. And you have deep expertise in how to perform that kind of scrutiny. How would you ask other members of the Xavier community who maybe also are affected but don't necessarily have the same immunology expertise to 
to do that kind of scrutiny? Well, I, I would say that with a non-science knowledge, whether it is any layman at Xavier or elsewhere, the, the, the knowledge asked the question is basically, can, who are, are we being informed properly about, about this? And any person should understand that it is important for, if we all want to benefit from, from, from the vaccines, we also need to be involved in, in, in their creation. We also, because we also want to know how they will affect us. It is important that some people do that. It is not important that everyone do that, but some people have to do it. So it is an informed judgment that, 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 that we do. There is an issue. We are in a, in a period where trust is a very fragile thing. There are many people, we, 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 we've been, unfortunately, educated not to trust anyone. Speak to your doctor. Speak to, your, speak to people you trust. Do not speak to someone very far away from you. And ask yourself, is that, and some people will have, will have to be involved. Some people will, for some it will be difficult to, to come to that level of trust. I understand that. But understand that others will have to come to that level of trust if you want, if you want to do this well. And we will have to learn to trust each other in, in, in greater ways. Part of that is by being more transparent, making sure that there are people around the table that look like me or look like Lance or whomever, right? Uh, so I think we want, we, we, want, we want others around the table who can be trusted and, 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 and who, who, who can ask those questions. But also understand if the people prepare, are running these trials, they can fail if they are not communicating to any layman. You cannot be communicating just as a specialist. The language of basically vaccinations, immunology, drugs and protection can be explained to any layperson. When I talk to you about the memory that you see, your body remembers, right? Any person can understand that, right? But then you also have to talk about side effects. Talk about the side effects. Talk about headaches. Talk about talk about headaches. Talk about muscle ache. Talk about does it keep you from coming back to work? Questions people want to know, right? You see your job as partly being that person who's taking on the role of explaining to the layman. Yes, and for me, it's it's, it's even simpler. I think it's also by I'm just I'm giving an example and. I come from a school of thought and also a, a religious uh, uh, tradition that says sometimes you preach with words, but most sometimes you preach with words only when necessary. Preach by example. What, what, in fact, many what, what, what Walter Kimber and I did was an example. We could do it. Now, if you do it, it's a voluntary choice. But understand, we did it. That's all. Dr. Verrett, are you... Um concerned at all about the um, politicization you discussed about masking and do you think that there that the vaccine has been similarly politicized and does that worry you and part two of that question would be the the rush there's been a lot in the media about the rush to the vaccine that there's there's a there's an impetus from the highest level of government right now to get a vaccine out to the public um, really quickly so it can be seen as a win do you worry that that may um preclude enough people from if there is a safe vaccine from participating in the vaccine in order to make a difference yes i do worry about it i worry in fact it will be better if the political creatures around us would be silent about and let the physicians and the scientists do their work because it is creating a matter of trust and it is being politicized that it becomes a good side on you on. And I, and, I can, and I can tell you that the political creatures who are speaking about this sometimes are coming from both sides of the aisle. Uh, 
we have on it's not it's not just a left or right piece there are people on the left who are also mitigating against vaccine as well because it's become a political question because it's seen as an advantage to somebody else uh the timetable of when the vaccine uh should be released is really something that should that should be looked by by the clinical and scientific people and then informing the people and i think we do ourselves a disservice by politicizing something like that and we've done it before and i use the mask example because essentially what we've done is pull the rug from other people when they needed the rug uh i use use the metaphor that uh, we keep talking about coming to immunity, herd immunity. And I use the metaphor to a group of students and I said, basically, there are two ways. Herd immunity is like looking at uh, the analogy of, I have to get to the bottom of this cliff. I can jump off, I can use a parachute. Use a choice. Both will get me to the bottom. The choice is jumping off or using a parachute. And then I start talking that parachutes are bad for you. You should not use parachutes, they have the wrong color. And the only choice is to jump off the cliff now. I think we're doing that with vaccines and masks. To the, and this way we're deserving people and we'll get people killed. To the point you were making earlier about setting an example. So in July, reporting by Bloomberg found that 82% of participants in the early stage trials of the Pfizer vaccine that you're now participating in were 82% of those participants were white. Um, elsewhere, it's been reported that the vaccine rollout may be delayed or less useful for communities of color because so many participants are white. In the letter, and as you've just said, you wrote that you were appealing to the students, faculty, staff, and alumni of Dillard and Xavier and sibling institutions to consider participating in this trial or others being conducted because the people and communities we serve look to us an example. How do you weigh the responsibility of the members of the Dillard and Xavier community that you're addressing there to join the trials against the responsibility of the medical institutions like Oshner, like Pfizer that are actually administering them to earn the trust of communities of color? How do you weigh the, the responsibility to participate against the responsibility to make participating appealing and to, to give people that trust in the act of participating? Well, the healthcare, the healthcare industry, hospitals, uh, pharmaceutical industries, et cetera, have, have their responsibility to earn the trust of the communities they serve. Being trusted by the communities you serve, it should be part of your mission if that's what you're doing. And clearly we have a lot of work yet to do in those sectors as well. One, one, of, the, one of the problems is basically the representation of our clinicians of color uh, at all sectors uh, of, the, of the establishment. That's an issue. They have their responsibility. Our responsibility is, is, is somewhat different because we're not, we are not the clinicians, but we have, we have a calling to serve the people, uh, to serve others as well. And exactly the example of people of color themselves being in the trial is an example to the rest of the world. Because clearly this, my, uh, if, 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 if two dozen or three dozens of people from Xavier or 10 dozens of people from Xavier uh, join the trial, it's significant in terms of an example we also need a lot of numbers of people outside of this area as well, because the percentage of the low percentage of participation in the trial at this point is actually a national issue, because we need twenty thousand to thirty thousand subjects national 
So essentially, the message, and we're not the only one sending the message. In fact, I could see that there was a, a reporter in Savannah who stepped into trial, and basically, uh, some of the same questions are being asked. Why do you do this? Because remember Tuskegee. There's uh, an old adage. Uh, it's in French because of the uh, uh, rhyme. So comparison n'est pas raison. Comparison is not reason. You compare it to another situation, but that's not the reason for you to act. Comparison does not give you. So the comparison to Tuskegee is useful to know, but it should not. It does not determine your 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 action. Uh, so I think we have we have a struggle, uh, and trust is something that that we build. An example of, the, of, of that. Uh, not only I, but also there are medical students and uh, others elsewhere who are, who are in the trial uh, and, and nurses who are in the trial because they know who will need them. They know clearly uh, people in clinical settings who need the vaccines. Uh, people are some people are volunteering to be in this first group in order to be a benefit to everybody else. It's a good thing. I'd say it's a Christian thing. And I. I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't ask, have you seen the ProPublica story from last week that came out on September 2nd that looked okay. at... Uh, about, 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 about Auschwitz. Exactly. I, I, I have seen the study. I, ha I have seen, I have not been able to verify or speak to anyone about that story. Uh, clearly, uh, if, that, if those things happen, it's a failing. Uh, it's a failing that is not like the failings that I've heard nationally because of in the middle, in the, in the middle of the, uh, I would say, the breakneck panic that people were going through, um, even uh, in Elmhurst Hospital in New York, remember where patients were, patients were in the hallways at Elmhurst. That's where I grew up in Elmhurst. So I would say that it's something that they need to look at basically to say exactly, are we being, are we giving the best service to the people we serve? And they, they need to troubleshoot that. So I think for the press to look at these issues is actually useful. It opens our eyes, it opens their eyes. And that's the only way we get better. And, and, I, and I should mention that the vaccine trial right now, I think doctors at Arsenal are involved in the trial. But the trial is actually Pfizer's trial. It's a national trial. I, and, and, and I would say that the failings of any of our institutions in, in the South right here, uh, they all have histories. And some of the histories are not very flattering. The question is that, do we come to change them, to make them our institutions today because they are hospitals. We need them, okay? And we need to demand that they do better than they did in the 50s and 40s and, and 60s. So, yes, I read, I read the article, I was troubled by it, but I think, uh, I know that many colleagues at, at Austin will be troubled by that as well. So, the question is what will they do? And that's what the press asks. I also want to ask, do you know of anyone or have you heard from anyone within Xavier who has decided to join the trial because of the letter? Yes. And, and, and they're not many, but so most people are coming off the president's door. But I know I, 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 I know that. Uh, and that's purely independent of them to do that. It may not be many, but we'll see. And also, I, there's no way that I wouldn't know because, because of HIPAA, Austin would not share that with me anyway. And, and they shouldn't. Thank you so much for all of your time. You're quite welcome. Keep up the good work. I think it's important that uh, one other thing I would say is that one of the, one I think of the one of the uh, results of the letter is actually it's making people ask questions, and I think that sort of critical analysis and thinking about what are the issues is important for us to be discuss thinking because I don't think we can be passing about something like that. 
Uh, and I'd say it should be informed in every which way, but also we need to have those conversations. And hopefully we will not need to have that conversation 50 years from now when our grandchildren are walking around. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's Dr. Reynold Barrett. He's the Dean of Xavier University of Louisiana. Up next, the Dean of Dillard University, Dr. Walter Kimbrough. A native of Atlanta, Dr. Walter M. Kimbrough received his undergraduate degrees from the University of Georgia and Miami University in Ohio, and his doctorate in higher education from Georgia State University. Thank you again so much for coming on. Um, I wanted to start off by asking, how did you learn about the vaccine trial in the first place? So like most people, well, I, I probably spent an inordinate amount of time um, watching cable news. So either watching or listening during the day. So, I mean, you hear lots of different stories. And one of the key stories I kept hearing was that you don't have people in the trials that represent the overall um, demographics of the country. And some even argued that um, you needed a greater number of people who are mostly impacted by it as well to ensure that the vaccine works. So I was like, one night, you know, we're at the house watching CNN and, you know, we're hearing about this. And I told my wife, I said, you know what, I think I might want to do the trial. And I think there was a story about a news anchor in Savannah, a black woman who was the first person to be involved in the national study. So like, no, oh, that sounds good. I think I might want to do it. But you just sort of go back to doing what you normally do. And then last month, um, Dr. Verrett and Xavier called me. He said, hey, I hadn't told anybody this, but I'm in this vaccine trial. Um, what do you think about getting into it? And then we sort of, you know, make an appeal to people. And he's a scientist, so he's saying, let's make an appeal to people to participate. I said, you know what? I've been thinking about doing this. So, yeah. So that was, that was easy for me. It was, just, it was just that simple. So he had the, the research team contact me about 10 days later. I'm there. You spend three hours going through this orientation. You either get portions of the vaccine or you get uh, placebo, which is a saline. So I don't know what I have. 50% chance I don't have anything. And, you know, just sort of listening to some of the anecdotal stories, I'm probably on the, I didn't get anything because I didn't have any kind of reaction or anything. And I, I go back next week and I have my second injection. So I don't know what I have. But anyway, um, so we did that. And then, you know, we got together and, Send out a really, you know, I try to tell people it's a really generic level. Here's the research. This is an issue. It's a problem. We decided that we're going to participate. Why don't you think about participating too? We know there's a lot of bad people have. We know Tuskegee, but just think about it. That's all the letter says. And so when people got upset about it, it's like, well, what letter did you read? Because that's not what we wrote. We just said consider. I, I don't know. I didn't think I had to explain what consider means, but obviously I did. Something I had been thinking about doing before. And when he reached out to me, I was like, yeah, you know, I think it's the least I can do. I'm a person who can do my job telecommute. There are people who can. People who look like me who are dying disproportionately from this disease. So what is my responsibility? So for me, I was like, I, this is something I could do. So I, I chose to do it, and I asked other people to think about doing it. If people don't want to, that's fine. Go about your business. I didn't realize that people were upset about the letter. What were, what were they upset about, as you understand it? What has happened is that for a lot of African Americans, it brings up the distrust in medical treatment as a whole. So a lot of people have been referencing the Tuskegee experiment, which we 
We put that in a letter, so we weren't hiding from it. We were like, look, we know people have issues with this because of Tuskegee. What I've learned is that people don't fully understand the Tuskegee experiment, and they have it in their mind that they injected them with syphilis. No, these people had syphilis, but they never got treated. They were just studied. So that's what it was. People don't understand that. People are saying you are pressuring students to get involved. Our letter was to students, parents, or students, faculty, staff, alumni, other universities. It was a broad range. You're just saying as two university leaders, this is something that we're doing. We encourage you to think about it too. That's all it is. But people harped on it like you're, you're making the students be guinea pigs and you're forcing them. That's like, yeah. I can't force the students to graduate in four years. If I could, I would have done that a long time ago. So basically, how in the hell do you think I'm forcing them to, to participate in a 26-month vaccine study when I can't force people to get an internship or to write a thank you letter? There's a lot of stuff I would force them to do that, I, I would, that are good things that I can't force them to do. So how am I forcing them to do this? It's, it's ridiculous. So I'm, I'm just at the point now where I'm just like, you're intentionally invested in being upset about something that you don't need to be upset about. But it brings up the bigger issue, which is, I think, in the medical community, they're really concerned because they can't get a representative sample in the trials because you have a, a strong segment of people that are just, they don't trust us at all. So I, I recognize that, and I, that's a part of the challenge. I, I can't fix that. I'm not a scientist, but I, the research community has got to figure out how do we get the people who will need this vaccine, who have been disproportionately impacted by it negatively, how do we make sure that the vaccine works for them? Particularly if you don't have enough of them who are willing to be in a trial to see if it works. That's a, it's a tough question. Dr. Kimbrough, based on what you just said, um, do you think that the distrust of the medical community from the black community is generational or do you think it's crossed generation uh, it's it's cross-generation, so it's not just people who would be old enough to really understand Tuskegee. Um, some of that's been passed down, but I just, there are people who are feeling, you know, and I think there's some truth in terms of disproportionate medical care based on race, and you get stories about that. Um, there aren't enough black doctors, so people don't, there's a trust in not going to the doctors. So, that, so it's, I mean, it's, it's layered. It's a very complex problem. And so I think we've got to figure out, which I think there was recently a gift, $100 million that Michael Bloomberg gave to the HBCU medical schools to try to figure out how do we produce more black doctors. So we, we've got to have more, you know, black faces working in black communities addressing public health issues. Um, so it's, it's multi-generational now. Like I said, if you have young people who are just saying, you know, I'm concerned, I don't know what they're going to put in my body, you know, and, I, and, and to me, like... I just I struggle with that because we're more as one person on Twitter yesterday said he said it seems like people are more afraid of the vaccine than the virus and that's it was it's a profound question he said I, he said I understand it but then I don't and so that's the challenge you you, you might have a really good a vaccine that I mean there's studies now African Americans we get the flu vaccine less than the general population. So now you're talking about something else, but we know this is deadly. I mean, in Louisiana, African-Americans are 33% of the state. We're 48% of the deaths. We have one of the highest disparities of poorest proportion of population and death in the country. We're like number two or three. And yet you have people who don't want anything to do with the vaccine. So that's, I think, you know, for me, I, I've just learned how difficult this issue is. And I, I did want to ask, I mean, for a lot of reasons, it seems like that 
distrust is fairly well founded, if not for your conversations with Dr. Barrett, do you think you would have joined the trial? I, I think I would have gotten around to it because it was already on my mind. That was just sort of like the sign for me to say, you said you want to do this. It, now it's, it just made it, he made it easy for me. So I didn't have to go look or anything. He was like, look, I'll have them contact you. So once that happened, it was an easy yes for me. Uh, but it was something I had been thinking about. So it wasn't like that was the first time the idea had been presented to me. I had probably been thinking about it for a month when I started to see these stories say the same thing over and over again, that we don't have a representative sample to make sure this thing works. Uh, so that's I, he just made it easy for me. And I think for me, that was part of for us to have a letter to try to make it easy for people to say, if you're thinking about it, we got an easy way for you to do it. So that's what that's what happened for me. So what were the risks of the trial as they were described to you or as you understand them now? Well, I, I think, you know, um, they go through, it's like you spend like several hours, they talk about a lot of different things. When it, my understanding is that when you get to a phase three, you know, your chances of, you know, really bad outcomes are really low because they've already, during phase one, they really start to make sure that it's safe. So that's why you don't even get the full vaccine. It's, they tell you it's, you get a portion of it if you're getting the vaccine, but they need to test it over a longer period of time. You just can't give somebody a, a vaccine, look at it for a month, and just say, okay, you're okay. Well, does it create other issues later on? So, I mean, there is a level of risk. Um, but I tell people it's, it's a level of risk every time somebody goes to McDonald's and eats that. And we do that every day will, willingly. And we know there's plenty of science to say, Long term, that can have some damage. And we do that every day. And there is no benefit for greater humanity for me eating at McDonald's. And there are people who do that literally every day. So at least this is something that it has risk to. We don't know what it is. It might be safer than McDonald's. You sound like you're probably as much of a news consumer as myself and Philip are, I guess. I'm, I'm assuming you saw the story about the AstraZeneca trial being paused. That's, I, I think that's the way it's supposed to work. And they, the, what I saw is that they didn't know exactly why the person got sick, but they stopped. That's the responsible thing. The, the, the program works the way it's supposed to. That we need to stop and say, okay, so what happened? That's that's the way it works. I mean, you don't have any advances in medicine without some of these tests. We have to do that. I, I you know, one of the things I was telling people is that. You know, a lot of people mourn when Chadwick Boseman, who played T'Challa in Black Panther, died. And there are studies that say that there are not enough African-Americans in oncology studies. So we mourn the loss of somebody who dies from cancer, prostate cancer at 43, which overwhelmingly impacts black men. But nobody's participating in the research to figure out how do we prevent other people at 43 years old from dying from cancer. We just can't create these drugs and these vaccines and these cures without testing them. So I think there is a level of risk, and I think we understand that. But we live in a society of risk. We do risky things all the time. Like I said, particularly in terms of what we put in our bodies, in terms of what we eat, drink, and all that other stuff. Do you think the publicization of the AstraZeneca trial and the adverse reaction of one participant adds to the distrust? Oh, and absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that adds to it. I mean, the, the overall politicization of this is a big problem because if you have the president keep saying we might have something right before a special day, people are not going to trust that at all. I mean, Kamala Harris is like, mm -mm, I'm not trusting that at all because we've, we've watched science say things that are untrue due to political pressure. 
we've had the CDC say things, you know, about, you know, convalescent plasma that they had to walk back due to. So people don't trust that. That makes it, a t- so I, like I said, I have no issues with anybody who is just like, nope, I'm not doing this, and here's the reasons why. That's fine. I, I get it, you know. Um, because there are reasons not to trust it. And we watch it on a day-to-day. We're watching it politicized. If I had to bet, there's going to be an announcement prior to the election that there is a vaccine. And I wouldn't take that. And there's just no way in the world. It's like, nope, because I'm participating in a trial that it told me unless they get a good vaccine, it will last 26 months. So that's two years. So, you know what I'm saying? To, to be in something they say it could last for 26 months and then two months later, it's like, oh, we're done. No, I'm not. I don't trust that either. So that's that's part of the challenge. And that makes it so once again, there's going to be a disproportionate impact on the group of people who need the vaccine the most because it's been politicized as well. How do you decide to trust a trial or a vaccine? What what brings you to the opposite place? I I don't know. I mean, I, I think for me, I guess I'm a bootleg scientist. My undergrad degree is in biology. Uh, from the College of Agriculture at the University of Georgia. So I have a, a, a general understanding of science that a lot of people don't have. So for me, that I, I have a level of comfort in terms of where, you know, studying, when you get to a phase three trial, what does that look like? Um, and so I have in that knowing that they've gone through several stages to get to this point. I mean, it, it's not good for me to eat Popeyes the way that I do, and I love Popeyes. I tell people, you want to know my blood type? It's spicy. I mean, that's, that's my, you know, I just have my physical and my, you know, my doctor saying your, your bad cholesterol is too high, but your good cholesterol is really high because I work out every day. So in my mind, I'm like, well, I can have this spicy Popeyes because I'm going to work out for an hour every day. But he's like, you got to get your levels down. I do that willfully to myself. I do that. So I know I'm taking a risk. I, I shouldn't do it, but I do it all the time. So it's, we, we make those calculations. Uh, so we just have to acknowledge it the same way. And, and this trial is probably much safer than the stuff I put in my body, the things I eat. So you mentioned earlier that you think that people have sort of a, a misunderstanding of the details of Tuskegee. How do you want members of the community that you addressed in the letter, so the HBCU community and Xavier and Dillard specifically, to understand Tuskegee, especially as it relates to this vaccine trial right now. Yeah, see, I don't I, I guess I'm probably at a point of cynicism now that people have bought into a narrative just to say, vaccine trials are bad, don't do it. So now I'm trying to make sense. If people have locked on to a narrative that they want to believe, I mean, we see it in our politics today. You know, how much time and energy do I spend trying to correct a faulty narrative? I, I mean, I hope that the medical professionals will step up and do it. And that's probably going to be my call. And, you know, doctors and medical professionals, they've got to really get out there and talk about this. I'm not going to be able to convince anybody in it. So I'm just at the point where it's like, you know what? <laughs> do what you want to do. I mean, that's, and I don't know if that's bad to feel that way, but that's, it's like, why am I going to spend energy arguing with someone over scientific facts when they brought into a narrative that they want to believe. If you want to believe Tuskegee is about them injecting people with syphilis, when that is clearly not what happened, I can't get you to change your mind. And aside from sort of these historical instances of 
racist medical experimentation, there continues to be widespread racism in medical care and yeah. research. And outside of the black medical community, how do you understand the responsibility of the medical community at large um, to earn the trust of the black community that you're addressing in this letter? Yeah, I, so I don't know. I mean, I've seen, um, you know, reports and studies where people are saying one of the ways to do that is that there has to be partnerships with trusted black institutions, so with black churches, with historically black institutions, which, like I said, Meharry Medical College in Nashville is an HBCU. They're doing the trials. I know they had some people who were upset, but they didn't get the same kind of pushback that we got, and they're actually doing the vaccine trial. So it just depends. So maybe it wasn't, you know, we aren't a medical school, so maybe that was part of it. Um, but there has to be more people who look like the community saying, I understand the issues, this is how it works. We need for you to give this a try. Um, but there, there, there have to be people. And even in this study that we're working with with Oxner, the, you know, the, the lead when the lead people is African American. I think the lead researcher is Latina. And so there are people of color that are involved in this work. But Oxner is not a brand that necessarily resonates in the black community. Not like a Meharry would in Nashville. So they're just gonna have to play a key role. They're just not gonna. You know, Tulane can't just come step in and say, we're going to do this trial. People, they're not going for that. They can hang that up. Um, so, it, it's, I mean, it, it's tough. If you were to lay out sort of a, maybe your dream approach for Oshner or some other local institution conducting this kind of research to make those partnerships with trusted members of the black community and make full partnerships right. in an advisory sense, what would that look like? I have no idea. Like I said, I, I think just just sort of watching some of the reaction that was not rooted in any science or fact, it's like, man, it's, it's a much deeper problem. And I think the problem's got to be addressed even before you bring in the medical, you know, experts like an Oshner. You know, how do we, I think, more grassroots talk about health and health disparities in black communities. And there has to be that broader conversation in terms of the things that we do to ourselves, the lack of care that we receive. Um, I think we've got to really lean into that a little bit more and have broader conversations about health. I mean, because COVID is a health disparities disease, you know, as much as anything else. And we're still not having that conversation. It's just we're accepting to say, you know, at one point in time in Louisiana early this summer, blacks were 70% of the deaths in the state. It's like, that was ringing all kind of alarm bells for me. And it didn't in a broader community. So there's got to be a broader health disparities conversation before we can even get to the, the resolution. We don't talk about that enough. And that's got to be done in higher education institutions, K through 12, and churches. All black organizations have to spend some time talking about health disparities regularly. And we don't. That's just not a part of our general conversation because some of it is some of it's painful because we have to talk about our behaviors that are not healthy. And that's, that's the start of it, too. So it's not just like we're getting bad medical care. Well, yeah, but we need so much medical care because we have too much sugar. We're not working out. We're not doing this. We're, you know, and there are some reasons for some of that, too. We need to, you know, so it's, it's a complex problem. It's a lot of different issues that I think we have to address. But it starts, I think it's a health disparities conversation first before we even get to the partnerships with you know, other medical agencies. I guess I want to 
keep on that for a second because I'm also curious about the responsibility of institutions that have participated in a historically racist system to yeah. do the work of outreach to not place all of the burden of yeah. the reach on the black community. How does that sit? Yeah, right? no, that's no, I, I think you're right. It, you know, uh, and I just don't know how you, because they, they still don't have the trust. So how, how do they partner? Uh, some people will say that there needs to be some kind of, you know, restorative program that they're creating or supporting some clinics or uh, where they're, I mean, financially supporting some efforts to start off to improve the health. I think that's where it has to start to be like, we're a part of this community. We're going to help get people healthy first. And then I think you can start doing, but that's going to be a, a financial investment that's made in those communities that I don't think has happened uh, working through different nonprofits. So I think that's sort of where it has to stay. Cause I think you are right that they they have, they can't just sit back and say, y'all go fix it for us. And then we'll come jump in. It's, that's not going to work. So they, they have to make some kind of investment to help people do that work. And there, I think there are plenty of nonprofits that are focused on addressing health disparities that could really use the right kind. That, that's going to be tricky, too, because, in, I mean, there are some people thinking, well, you must have been paid by Oxner to put out, a, I didn't get anything to do. This is something I wanted to do, and I'm just telling you to think about this. But there's a cynicism. I was like, I don't even think like that. So it was, you know, but they, they probably should for some nonprofits, you know, not to encourage somebody to participate in something, but to give them programs or, or funds for programs that will promote healthy lifestyles that's that's a good use of, of money to do that so then you don't need as many of these other studies because you're trying to do more preventative work i feel like i would be remiss if i didn't ask about um this story from propublica that came yep. out last week have you seen that story i saw it i had already started i think i went to participate on august 25th so I think that added another, which is why you're just sort of like, man, y'all y'all messing up all the way around. People aren't going to want to participate in studies when, you know, this report says, I mean, normally, you know, people do, if you want to die around family, but then if you're disproportionately sending black people home, the families that are not equipped to handle COVID, that's bad too. So I don't, and I haven't seen if they've responded to that any kind of way. But then that makes people skeptical, which, you know, in our letter, we say we're, we're, we're doing this with Ochsner, but there are other groups, too. We're not I'm not selling any different. We're just saying, look at the at the idea of participating. I don't care who you do it with. I don't need to even know. I don't know. I don't want to know. So but I think it hurts them as a, as an agent to be able to recruit a diverse group of people, because that story then gives people it's another thing like, see, there you go. You know, so it steps on a message that we're trying to say, like, hey, we really do. I mean, which is still true. The, the fact doesn't change. We need to have a diversity of people in these trials. That doesn't change no matter what Oxford did or did not do. But the, the fact that they have done something that raises questions harms their ability to do what we know is needed to be done. They need to figure out how to fix that. And you started to say something on this. And if you want to, I'd love to hear more about it. Did You said that you were enrolled in the trial before, before seeing that. Right. Would having seen that story before enrolling in the trial have changed your decision-making at all? Yeah, I, I don't, you know, probably not because I know it's a huge organization and the research portfolio is going to be different than the medical, the, the medical care. So probably wouldn't. Um, I don't see a reason. It doesn't make me nervous. I mean, because right now, the way they tell you is I could stop right now at any point in time. So I can be like, nope. 
I'm not I'm not going Tuesday. So I mean I, I haven't completed even, you know, getting the, the you know, whatever I have, I haven't completed that. So I can just say, nope, I'm out. And that's that that didn't impact me like that. Has anyone approached you and said, I'm thinking about doing yeah. this or I am joining this because of this letter? Yeah, I had a couple I probably had maybe three people. Uh, one is a, a older man who you know, he just said, I think I can do it, you know, and I have high blood pressure and I take medicine for that. And I was like, well, they, you know, they go through a full battery to make sure you're able to participate. So they're not going to let you do something that's going to be harmful. But there will be people who, you know, have high blood pressure who need to take the vaccine too. So it seems like they need something that's going to be safe that doesn't counteract bad with the, the medicine that he takes. So I just said, you just have to sort of see. So he just thought about it because he was hearing people sort of complaining about it. And he was like, I don't want to do it. Don't do it. He said for him, he's like, I think I might, I might want to do it. And for him, it was sort of like, I want my life back. I'm tired of doing all this other stuff. So if I can do something to help, then that's part of, I think my motivation too. I'm just like, I'm sick of this stuff. So if I can be of any help to speed this up, let me, you need some more black people. All right. I mean, whatever we got to do, because I'm, I'm sick of this. Uh, you know, I got two, I have one child that's going to school every day. I got one that just started high school that's in the house every day. She got to get out of the house. It's, just being at home by herself starting ninth grade is not good. Yeah, I'm ready for this to be over with. Thank you so much for being with us today and for doing that work. We really, really appreciate it. All right, you too. Thanks so much. You've been listening to a bonus episode of Behind the Lens. Thanks to our special guests, the deans of Xavier University of Louisiana and Dillard University, HBCU schools in the New Orleans area, Dr. C. Reynolds Verrett and Dr. Walter Kimbrough, also our health reporter, Philip Kiefer. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks for listening.